chapter 18 of the yellow sheet this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org the yellow sheet the librivox nano rimo project 2007 chapter 18 written and recorded by smoky b Derek awoke as if from an early grave, clawing toward consciousness like a free climber in a rainstorm. Finally returned to the waking world, he lay on his back for some time, feeling the wetness around him. At last he rose on his elbows and opened his eyes. The sheets were yellow again. With a groan he shook his head and rolled over, already knowing he'd not have time to shower before the show. Gotta lay off them pills, he told himself as he rose, or at least stop mixing them with that blue tulip tequila. Stripping a pillowcase free, he wiped the urine from his body and pulled on his cleanest underwear, then jeans, t-shirt, and flannel. Lastly, he pulled on his boots and belt, a pang of reminiscence aching through him at the feel of his Kenworth belt buckle. Wish I was still on the road, he thought. Of course, he was still on the road just not in the way for which he now longed. Ten minutes later, he arrived at the club, shaking visibly, trying to pass it off as if he kept rhythm, practicing a tune. You smell like piss, his manager told him disgustedly. Well, you look like shit, Derek replied with uncharacteristic panache. As ever, Derek felt strange on stage, and with good reason. He did not know that most of his audience thought him a freak, a joke. A nut. Months ago, after the spirits in the air had told him to quit driving trucks and take up singing, a scout from the Tarzan Chinaski show had come across him singing on a street corner in D.C., whereto the agent had repaired for a three-hour, thousand-dollar session with Mistress Goddess, the dominatingest dominatrix in 50 states. Four hours later, strolling the avenues with the vague taste of his own feces still on his lips, Said agent had come across Derek on the sidewalk singing, Working for the CIA, killing psychic terrorist blues, from whence he parlayed into, My wife's a ninja and I'm gonna have to leave her, and on to radioactive amulet of love. There being something singularly comic and grotesque in Derek's presentation, the agent had whisked him off to New York City for a few spots on the show and then... For a generous kickback, fobbed him off to an unctuous manager keen to bleed every cent he could from Derek's fleeting notoriety. On stage now, feeling inestimably better thanks to the line of cheap coke that manager had granted him, Derek launched the show with, Am I in Japan? I think a nuke just exploded. As always, people laughed and shouted things. This still pained him as it would anyone to be laughed at as they tried, in public, to make sense of their disordered, disastrous lives, but his manager had told him to just play on because great art provokes many reactions. It seemed to Derek that laughter was the most marked and prominent reaction, but Eon, that was his manager, had told him the others were aching in silence, stung by his piquant and sensitive beauty. It was this thought that steeled him for one of his most heartfelt, tuneful revelations. Alternate dimensional psychos killed my buddy at the library. 
As he strummed the first chord, he wondered where, oh where, was his wife, who really was a ninja and hadn't been home in ages. In fact, his wife now trod the dirt of her homeland, spinning upon it 180 degrees to face her attackers, two beautiful babes built like swimsuit models, one a dark-eyed, raven-haired beauty, her golden skin gleaming, the other an overtly sensual Asian gal like herself from across the pond in China. Though both had been modestly clothed in the chapter before, they now boasted such sleek, taut outfits as might make Boris Vallejo blush. Aiko, too, though perfectly dry and reasonably clad in the previous scene, wore now solely a slim white robe which was, inexplicably, sopping wet, clinging closely to her pert yet pendulous breasts and wide round hips. Give it up, Blue Tulip, the Mexicana told her. If we don't get you, the white rose will. As she spoke, she pulled a pair of nunchaku from her waist, and her Chinese companion drew two daggers from sheaths on her hip. Unarmed, Aiko was unafraid. These minions were not, she knew, though she knew not how she knew this. Likewise, she knew now that the White Rose was a nefarious assassin of inscrutable birth, presently ensconced, or so it was said, in a mountain keep due east of Khyber Pass. She did not know, though she strongly suspected, that these women sought the amulet she wore round her neck, and she did not know why. She did know, for sure, that she was about to kick the living crap out of these two skanks who had the nerve to get in her grill. You fat sluts, she sneered at them. I bet you want to get this done quick so you can run back to town and wrap your cream cheese thighs around some pot-bellied American soldier, milking his two-inch machine till he stained you with his gaijin seed. She hoped to provoke an angry mistake with the insult, but the women remained cool. Azalea, as the Chinese gal was known, and Rhoda, for rhododendron, bent their knees and crept forward slowly, inching apart as they drew towards Aiko, who likewise crouched on the balls of her feet and raised her bag to her chest. Bitch, Azalea spat, the only stains on me are gonna be your blood. As her bifurcating opponents tried to flank her, Aiko lurched toward Azalea, seeming to stumble. Azalea gleefully leapt upon her just as Aiko rolled onto her back and thrust the bag in the air. The daggers bit deeply into it, tearing through the yellow sheets and into the blue tulip, sinking through the book's leather-bound cover as if through sodden cardboard. As their tips came through the far side, Aiko's heel slammed into Azalea's kneecap, knocking it free from its cartilaginous moorings and dropping her to the ground as Aiko tossed the bag and thrust an elbow toward her teeth with gratifying effect. Aiko had time to appreciate the gleam of ivory in the sunlight as Chinese teeth splayed through the air, then ducked at the wooden whisper of the nunchaku speeding toward her. Fingertips touching the turf, Aiko swept out her leg and nearly brought Rhoda down, but she stumbled back and righted herself as Aiko rose again and charged straight toward her. Rhoda connected completely with the nunchaku, just as she was trained, hitting Aiko squarely in the forearm to bring down her guard. But Aiko simply took the pain on her left arm and, with a punch from her right, crushed the bridge of Rhoda's nose back and upward into her brain, leaving her dead with dumb shock on her face. Plucking the nunchaku from the deadened fingers as the woman toppled to the ground, 
Aiko turned back toward Azalea, twisting the hardened wood in her palm as her nemesis struggled to stand on one leg, blood surging through the fingers she held to her mouth. I could use your knives to end this, Aiko opined as she swung the nunchaku casually through the air, but I need the exercise. Raising the nunchaku aloft, she began to spend them fiercely as she crept toward the squirming Azalea, and I need some answers. Some distance away, Dogen Michichika dropped the lenses from his eyes. Jesus, he said breathily, despite his avowedly Buddhist beliefs. Jesus Christ. He was shocked and disturbed and not a little excited. Meanwhile, or perhaps six days later, on the road, who can say, back at Big Rick's coffee shop and bait shack, Derek was closing his set with his big hit. It's the radioactive amulet of love, a radioactive amulet of love, given to me by angels above, and it kept me safe back in the day when I worked for the CIA. Killing in the maze of the USA, and then they fired me. But I don't care cause when push came to shove They couldn't take away my amulet of love My radioactive amulet of love My wife understands she's not like the rest She wears my amulet on her chest Right between her big old breasts And it keeps her safe from Terrorist, it's a radioactive amulet of love. The radioactive amulet of love, etc. When the show was over, Derek thought the applause was sporadic and desultory. At least he would have had he sufficient vocabulary. Instead, he merely slunk off the tiny stage, discontent and deeply deranged, empty of love and chock-full of lonesome. The coke rush was long gone by then, and he was happy for the pint of whiskey managerially proffered as he passed by Eon. There was, as usual, no one waiting to see him after the show. A few people shouted at him as the crowd filed out, mostly unkind things, laced with derisive glee. But that was it. Though seemingly and irrefutably insane, Derek was a handsome man, and at first he had been asked for autographs and even scored a few groupies. Now there was no one, or what few women came by, Eon usually managed to siphon off for himself. Then Derek saw her. She couldn't be real. No way. A stunning Nordic queen of storybook beauty her long platinum hair streaming over a blue silk shawl lined with lustrous white ermine. Beneath that, a blue gown, long and tight, with a generous slit up the side, clean to the waistline, the alacritous fabric reveling in her gorgeous body, clinging tightly to every curve. I really liked your show, she purred through pursed, perfect lips. Derek's mind went blank.
Azalea's scream was cut short by an osseous crunch. A gratifyingly osseous crunch at that. Despite her best efforts, Aiko had learned little from her and had pitched her off the cliff to ease her frustration and to see if she could hit that wide, flat rock jutting out from the waves. Despite Azalea's inquisitional fortitude, Aiko had advanced her understanding. The violence and the instincts it aroused had awoken much within her. She knew that she had been kidnapped as a child, snatched up from the Renaissance Fair by a killer who had recognized her interest in swordplay. She had been taken deep in the Australian outback and raised as a flower in the Garden of Death, an elite and cultish clique of incomparable assassins. For years she had trained with and killed for them, until something had gone wrong. The White Rose had betrayed her. She did not know how, or why, or when, but she knew she had been wronged, deeply and savagely wronged. She knew one other thing, too. The White Rose must be destroyed. And on this she mused as a sound rose around her. When she looked up from the sea, four army helicopters roared motionless in the air above her, waiting. Derek had little idea how they wound up back at his hotel, piss-stained as it was. He had not wished to bring her there, but his mind was meat, meat for the chopper. Rather a wreck to begin with, he had fused all circuits when this ambrosial babe had stood beside him. She simply would not take no for an answer. He had even told her he wet the bed. I like water sports, she confided, drawing toward him, putting her lips to his ear. Maybe we can have a golden shower when we're done with everything else. Derek knew, of course, that there was no way on Earth, or in Hell, or pretty much in the known universe, that such a sublime and impossible woman would have the least bit of interest in a man like him, nor, truth be told, had he much carnal use for such supernal sexiness, as his parts had not quite worked for years owing to the brainwashings and the psychiatric medications. Still, the ineffable force of sheer effulgent beauty had overwhelmed his brains, drawing him on despite the manifest wrongness and too-good-to-be-true-so-it-probably-isness of it all. Now she slid shut the door and locked the bolt home, pressing Derek against the wall. She did not kiss him, but held her lips close, cooing sweetly in his ear. She smelled like a garden as her right hand held his wrist tightly, her left setting deftly to work. As his jeans hit the floor, wonder of wonders, he felt old familiar stirrings within, and his manly pride rose to meet her hand as she slowly reached for it. Oh my God, he thought, it's really going to happen. Lord God, thank you. Thank you so- ah! Derek screamed as she crushed his testicles in an iron grip. Black stars burst through his vision and he fell to his knees as she crouched beside him still squeezing tightly. She slapped him. Shut up, fool, she ordered, and slackened her grip from excruciating to unbearable. You piss-stained dirtbag, she snarled again. You disgust me. Tell me where it is or I'll pull him off and feed him to you. With a howl very much like that of a half-crushed cat, Derek begged, What? Where's what? She punched him in the eye with her free hand, opening a great gash. 
His head flew back and bounced on the floor, and she slammed it down several more times until it bled from two sides, spraying wild patterns around him as he writhed in pain and terror. The amulet, you loathsome cur. The amulet. Tell me where it is or you will beg God for death and freedom. Derek, who had very recently been thinking he really was crazy and that there was no amulet, as so many people had told him, was quite pleased with this, despite his situation. I don't know, he said honestly. I think my wife has it, but I don't know where she is. Sensing the truth of this, the woman loosed her grip, and Derek flopped forward in ecstatic relief, moaning tremulously upon the floor. The woman stood, surveyed the room with disgust, and kicked Derek fiercely in the kidney. Worm, she spat at him. Derek lay on his face in agony, not knowing what she did as she rummaged around his room and through the kitchen. Perhaps she looked for clues, or perhaps sought to sate herself on the sights of so sad a man and his accoutrements. Whatever the case, it may have been an hour, or perhaps twenty seconds, when she stood over him again and spoke his name, her voice now alive with sympathy. Oh, Derek, you poor baby, she cried, as if in horror. I didn't mean to hurt you so bad. Derek, thinking perhaps her sympathy had been roused by the wreckage in the room which spoke so symbolically of the wreckage in his life, felt a warmth flow through him as of good whiskey. It's all right, he gasped through gaps in his gums, his swollen tongue lolling like a drunken crocodile. No problem. He struggled to his hands and knees, wanting to make eye contact and smile at her. Oh, sweetie, why don't you let me make it up to you, honey baby? His eyes agape with wonder, Derek marveled as she reached behind her back and loosened her robe, unwaning the moons of her feminine beauty. Derek struggled to his knees and moved toward her, his eyes aglow with joy and wonder. So perfect they were, so round and luminous and lovely, two perfect points in God's perfect world. The right one bore a small tattoo, a flower of some sort. Derek inched closer, raising his palms to her breasts as a grateful man holds his palms to the Lord. Oh, thank you, Jesus, he said aloud this time, rattling the words through the wreck of his teeth. Thank you, God, for being so good to your pitiful servant and for... Chunk! The stiletto went in just under his fifth rib. Iko climbed aboard the first chopper after a brief parley with the man inside via the bird's PA system. It was a transport chopper. Inside, along two benches against the outer walls, sat about 30 men with large, complex assault rifles, each one fitted with, among other things, an under-rifle grenade launcher. Their body armor was thick and metallic, looking inescapably like a combination of Iron Man and a samurai warrior. Standing in the center aisle between them was a man Aiko now recognized as Dogen Michichika, the third highest ranking general in the Japanese self-defense forces. As she climbed into the chopper, he stepped toward her and bowed in a kindly manner. We are here to help, he said. End of chapter 18.